You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. This is episode 211 of You Don't Know Flack. This is Documentaries Part 2. And on this episode of You Don't Know Flack, I will be talking all about music-related documentaries. So first of all, welcome back to You Don't Know Flack. This is Rob Flack O'Hara, and this is a stripped-down edition of You Don't Know Flack. I don't have my sound samples lined up. I don't have my video cues lined up. I've thrown in some video. If you're watching the YouTube video, there will be some stuff to watch um, but, uh, this is a pretty stripped down episode because, uh, for a couple of reasons, number one, this is a part two, a continuation of episode 210, which was, uh, my top 10. I started off to say my top 10 documentaries, but there were so many, uh, documentaries that I love. I'm a, a big fan of documentaries. And so, uh, w- over the past couple of weeks, what I've decided to do is to split the episode into three parts. So this is the second of three parts. And all the documentaries I will be talking about today are related to uh, music. They're all music-related documentaries. And then on part three, we're going to be doing computer and video game documentaries. So I know a lot of people will be looking forward to that as well. So uh, we're going to just jump right in. I'm not going to do a loading time. I'm not going to do all the stuff. We're not going to um, delay the content like I normally am known for doing. Uh, I will give the normal plugs up front. If you want to see this on YouTube, you could go to youtube.com forward slash Sprite Castle. That's where you can find you don't know flack. Also, if you want to go to youtube.com forward slash Amigos Retro Gaming and look for the Sprite Castle playlist, that's where all my Commodore 64 comment is gameplay and video podcasts. Uh, and all my podcasts can be found at podcast.roboheron.com. Uh, my Patreon information, if you want to support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash robohara, and you can find out how to sign up and support the show, all that good stuff. So without uh, belaboring the point, let's go ahead and jump into the second third, the continuation of this episode, which is music-related documentaries. You know what? Before I even do that, look how I sidetracked myself right off the beginning. Uh, before I do that, I would like to say that uh, uh, if you are here in the United States, then you know that last Thursday was Thanksgiving. I know that I have a lot of listeners overseas uh, in different countries that don't celebrate Thanksgiving. But Thanksgiving, you know, when uh, in the United States, when you're a kid, uh, we are taught that Thanksgiving was the day that the pilgrims came from England. They landed on Plymouth Rock and they met the Native Americans and everybody shook hands and got along great. And uh, they prepared this big feast and that became known as Thanksgiving. And of course, as adults, we learned that that's not uh, maybe not all the details. Um, You know, there was a 
a joke I saw on Saturday Night Live not too long ago that the uh, Native Americans brought corn to the first Thanksgiving and the white man brought smallpox. So <laughs> I don't know that it's uh, uh, necessarily as cut and dried as we like to uh, imagine it was as children. But the important thing about Thanksgiving to me as an adult is not uh, that story. It's not about Pilgrim Rock. It's not about the Mayflower and the pilgrims that came over. But, you know, it is a time of year to be thankful for the things that you have and give thanks uh, for the things that you have in your life. And I don't just mean things like computers and video games and stuff like that, but uh, the relationships in your life, the people that you have around you, the um, prosperity that you've, uh, you know, had in life, all those things, uh, you know, very literally, uh, our health, uh, is something that, uh, uh, over the past year and a half, I've started to, um, be much more grateful for my health. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, even when the numbers seem to start trending one way and then something else happens or whatever, like it's no denying that we've, been in this pandemic situation for a year and a half and and uh um just when it seems like things are getting better then we get news informing us things are getting worse and so um but i am grateful for uh you know obviously my family uh, my immediate family i mean my wife and my kids um who i i just adore all three of them they're the most important things to me and uh you know both of my parents came over for thanksgiving and uh uh, my wife, Susan, her mom came over and uh, a few of our other uh, close family members came over. So it was a, it was a good Thanksgiving. And, uh, you know, I, I'm always afraid of this sounding cheesy or something. And I don't mean it that way. But I am so thankful for all of this. And by all of this, I mean um, the ability to do podcasting, uh, that I'm able to come up with content for podcasting that I, you know, there was a time where I couldn't believe that somebody would have uh, any interest in what I might have to say. I'm thankful for you guys. I'm thankful for the people that support me, but I'm just, uh, most of all thankful that you're here, that I'm here and you're here. And, uh, I, I, when I say grateful, I don't, I don't mean that lightly. I really do mean like, I think about that. Like when I'm not recording, I think about that. I talk to people and I'm like, can you believe that, uh, you know, I'm able to come up with stuff to talk about and people want to hear what I have to talk about. And, and I'm truly, truly grateful. Uh, and, and so thankful that all of us have come together to be able to do this. So thank you guys for, uh, not just the support, but, and the feedback, but just for listening. I mean, literally just for listening, I thank you. So uh, we're going to get started talking about documentaries now. And all the documentaries that I'm going to be talking about today have to do with music or musicians. I was going to limit this to 10 documentaries. I think I got it down to 25. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time going in depth on each one of the documentaries. But I do want to paint the picture of what the documentary is about and maybe tell you one or two things that I took away uh, from the documentary. Now, if you've uh, been a long-time listener to You Don't Know Flack, you probably remember the episode where I talked about running a magazine, and I did another episode where I talked about music recording, and on both of those, I talked about a band uh, called Oil Filter, who was a, uh, a band that was in Spokane, Washington, when I lived in Spokane, 
Um, I uh, interviewed them for my magazine. I ran layouts. I helped them design the audio and video or the uh, audio. No, sorry, scratch that. The video for their uh, debut CD release. I did the layout and design and things like that. And I, I'm still uh, in communication with some of those guys today. And so instead of trying to pull out different screenshots or things from all these different documentaries, because this one got a little bit out of hand, what I have done, if you're watching the video, as I switch over here, is in the background, I have put uh, some of the home recordings that I did of Oil Filter playing live. Now, of course, there's no audio because... Uh, if I were to have audio, oil filter would not only drown me out, but probably half the continent. They were <laughs> one of the loudest bands I ever saw live. So, uh, But you can see the video and see what they look like and they perform uh, while, while we'll talk about music and music documentaries. So I thought that would be something fun to add. As we get started, now these documentaries that I uh, put on my list that I wanted to talk about are basically in alphabetical order. There's a few that aren't quite in alphabetical order because I put the name of the band uh, in front of some of them if I don't recognize what the title of the documentary is. But essentially, it's alphabetical, except for the first one, which is Get Back. And this is the documentary that dropped last weekend, actually over the weekend, about the Beatles recording session. This is the Get Back uh, recording session, sometimes referred to as the Let It Be uh, recording session. This uh, premiered on Disney Plus over the weekend. It was a documentary that was filmed at the time the Beatles got back together. I believe this is after uh, Sgt. Pepper. And they had done multiple albums, the Sgt. Pepper and the White Album, uh, and albums where they had gone into the studio and just done overdub after overdub, layer after layer. And they wanted to get back and do a recording uh, session like they used to do in the old days with just the four guys, the fab four sitting in a single room, looking at each other with microphones and, and wired into amplifiers and play their music. And so as they got back together, a film crew was hired to capture this. And the initial idea was that the footage was going to be made into a TV special, which was announcing the uh, Beatles going back to live performing, but they didn't, they decided they didn't want to do that. They changed course in the middle of the session. They decided they didn't want to go back and record or uh, perform live. And so instead it became a documentary about the Beatles recording this album. Now, um, let it be the album. This is a little confusing time-wise. Uh, this was recorded, uh, captured on video and then after it was recorded, the band went on to record Abbey Road, which was their last studio album to record. Then they released Abbey Road, and then they broke up. <laughs> and then this final album, which comes from uh, the session that is recorded in the documentary Get Back, the Let It Be, uh, was released. It was released a month after. I believe it was... Um, I'm off the top of my head here, but I believe it's May 1970 that it was released and the Beatles broke up in April of 1970. So I'm sure you've heard about this. This is a documentary that was released by Peter Jackson. He used some sort of magic technology that he possesses to take old footage and make it look modern. He's run it through some kind of filter, maybe an AI kind of thing. I don't know how he does it. 
but the end result is this looks like home movies that could have been recorded yesterday. They're so clear. They are so, I mean, it looks like modern HD footage. It's been split up into three parts, which is good because it is eight hours long. <laughs> and uh, there are moments of magic caught. I mean, there are there is a, a scene where, and this takes place over basically one month, January of 1969. There is a scene where all the Beatles are supposed to show up in the morning at a recording session, and John Lennon doesn't show up. He and Yoko had been out the night before and had overslept, and they're not there yet. So the other three Beatles are sitting in the studio killing time, and Paul McCartney walks over to the piano, starts plunking on some keys, and without about 10 to 15 minutes, this becomes the song Let It Be. Uh, it, it it was mind-blowing to watch. It's absolutely amazing. Um there's a lot of footage of uh, uh, John working on um, the song Don't Let Me Down, which I'm sure you know if you, if you are familiar with the Beatles. Don't let me down. And just them doing it over and over and adding lyrics and changing lyrics. And, and they do the same thing with the song Get Back. Uh, it You know, um, as they start doing it, Paul McCartney keeps saying, like, Jojo Jackson. Like, <laughs> the, the person in the song has a last name. Jojo Jackson left his home in Arizona. And then they go through different names, and, and they can't find a name. And then they finally settle on just Jojo. And then they say in, um, you know, Phoenix, Arizona, they settle on Tucson, Arizona. And, and so it's it's really funny to watch the evolution of these songs. Um, there is drama in the documentary. At one point, George Harrison quits the Beatles, which is not something that I knew. He basically gets frustrated with the recording process and says, see you around. He leaves, goes back to his home. They can't get a hold of him for three or four days and they have multiple talks and they finally talk him into returning <laughs> and finishing the project. Um, there's also a guy named Billy Preston, who is a keyboard player uh, I only literally knew him because uh, he was he plays Sergeant Pepper in the movie Sergeant Pepper, uh, in the, which I watched a lot when I was a kid. But he shows up. He is a professional keyboard player, and he's a fan of the Beatles. And the Beatles say, "Hey, man, why don't you stick around?" And he ends up performing, you know, on most of the songs that are on the album, and just you know, just. Uh, um, spontaneously joining in and creating stuff that are, are iconic parts of those songs. Uh, so anyway, if you are a fan of the Beatles and even if you're not a fan of the Beatles, like I used to tell people all the time, like my top three favorite bands at one time were like, you know, Slayer and Metallica and Anthra. I mean, and, uh, you know, later on like fear factory, just all this like heavy metal, you know, industrial metal. And, I would sing the praises of the Beatles. Like nobody put together pop songs like the Beatles. They really did set the groundwork for what, you know, became pop music. So even if you're not a huge Beatles fan, you should try to watch some of this. It's really amazing just to watch how creative they were in the studio and watch how they play off of each other. It's, it's really interesting to watch. So, 
Uh, and that came out again last weekend. It was released on Disney Plus. So I got to kick off with that. We watched the whole thing this weekend, uh, all eight hours of it, and it was absolutely fantastic. So jumping into my list, the first documentary that I have written down here is called A Band Called Death. And this is a documentary that was released in 2012. Essentially, what this documentary is about is a group that went through a couple of different names, but they renamed themselves Death. And it was three uh, African-American guys who... When people saw, and they're from Detroit, so when people saw them, everybody thought, oh, it's it's Motown-type music. They don't want to play that. They were coming up with basically the seeds of punk rock. They were playing punk rock and thrash-style uh, music, and this is, um, uh, I think it says in the tagline, two or three years before the Ramones. So it's not like they were copying somebody. They were doing something original, and... It's a it's a really interesting documentary about how these guys were groundbreaking musicians, but got no credit for what they did. And eventually the band broke up. One of the guys passed away. And it's not until later that their recordings are discovered and uh, they they finally get credit for some of the things they had done. But it's much, much later. It's it's decades later after they had performed all that. So it's a, a great documentary. It's a band called death. And um, what would I take away from this documentary? I guess I would say that, uh, and this may be some of these, I may repeat as I go through the list, but death is a band that, and there is another band called death. There's a death metal band called death. Um, and, and this isn't that, but I guess what I would say the takeaway is, is that there are so many, bands that other bands built on top of that I'm not familiar with and that none of us are familiar with. Um, you know, it wasn't like um, the Ramones just came out of left field. I mean, there were bands before them that were doing things that were similar. You know, everybody has somebody that influenced them and maybe a hundred bands that influenced them. But uh, so it's always interesting for me to look into the roots of styles and, and genres of music and see uh, where things came from, you know? So that's uh, one of the most interesting things I think about that documentary. Again, that's called a band called death. Uh, the next one on my list is Amy, uh, which was released in 2015. This is obviously the documentary about Amy Winehouse. Um, it is, um, uh, I think what, is both troublesome. I mean, it's interesting. It's like watching a car wreck. It is watching somebody who is so talented and so amazing and watching her life spiral out of control and no one being able to control her. No one being able to rein her in. Nobody being able to control her substance abuse and just watching her talent go up, 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 and then watching it start to go down, down, and then watching her pass away. Um, you know, I would say Amy Winehouse's style of music, and, and one aspect I would say not my favorite genre of music. On the other hand, I would say it's everybody's favorite, not favorite, but it, it is a uh, palatable to everybody. The, the style of music she does is not uh, grating or offensive. It's um, pop music and it's soul music and jazz, you know, style music, I suppose. And 
it really, I mean, I would say that's the takeaway of it is just the, the beauty of uh, someone who's so talented. And then unfortunately just watching it slowly get faded away and, and no one being able to prevent that, but it's a good documentary and it tells her story. So um, if you think you might be interested in Amy Winehouse's story, Amy from 2015 is a good one. Uh, next up is the Beastie Boys story from 2020. Uh, before this came out, there was a Beastie Boys book that was released. I believe it's 500 and something pages, almost 600 pages. I have a copy of it right here next to me on my bookshelf. I was a fan of the Beastie Boys. I can't say from the beginning. I could say from License to Ill, which was the beginning for most people. If you weren't local to New York City and hadn't heard them uh, through you know, local means that way, that most of the country, uh, if you're of a certain age, when um, Fight for Your Right to Party and, and uh, those songs hit MTV, No Sleep Till Brooklyn, and we all got the tape. I mean, I remember the year. Everybody at school showed up with the tape. We all listed, listened to the tape over and over. Everybody who's my age knows every word of every song of that album. We can be in the car and have my, my phone on shuffle and Mutiny on the Bounty comes up um, or, uh, uh, you know, any of the songs on on that uh, album and my wife knows every word i know every word my friends knew every word of that we would sit on the playground and sing those songs so it was just a huge uh made a huge impression and of course you know looking back on history uh there were bands probably at the time that were more talented that were better at rapping that had better production it's unfortunate that these guys made it onto mtv probably uh, because they were white, they got into heavy rotation that way, and that's how a lot of people, uh, you know, discovered rap and discovered the Beastie Boys. But you can't say it's all a bad thing either, because a lot of the people that discovered the Beastie Boys then went on. You know, I had already been listening to uh, the Fat Boys before the Beastie Boys. I had already been listening to uh, Run DMC. I had already had been listening to um, oh several Jam on it. <laughs> So I was I was into that mostly for breakdancing, um, but you know a lot of the people that discovered the Beastie Boys went on to discover other things. So that's a good takeaway from it. Now, unfortunately, one of the Beastie Boys, MCA, passed away from throat cancer. Um, it was one of the few times. I mean, I've definitely seen celebrities pass away and been bummed out. It's one of the few times I saw a celebrity who I have no connection to pass away and i literally cried it was so sad because i think he was he and, and ad rock are probably one and two uh of my favorites in the beastie boys but if you know mca he was so much more than just a rapper he was a and supported human rights he um you know helped form the tibetan freedom festival like all these different things right so anyway they you know, the King Ad Rock, Adam and uh, uh, and Mike D basically said, that's it for the Beastie Boys. It's over. Well, you know, we're never going to we're never going to perform as just the two of us. It was the three of us. It was our thing. And that's it. And so after that, after MCA died, they eventually put out this book, which is everything. It is a compendium of the Beastie Boys story. It is everything from point A to point Z with all kinds of things in the middle. 
And I bought it. Uh, I pre-ordered it. It came. I read it from cover to cover. I mean, it took me a week to read it uh, just because I couldn't stop uh, reading. I mean, it's so, so fantastic. But a lot of people who like the Beastie Boys are not going to read a 600-page book about the Beastie Boys. And so that is essentially what the Beastie Boys story is. Now, there are a lot of uh, segues and weird uh, interruptions and articles and things like that in uh, the Beastie Boys book that have kind of been pulled out of this to make it uh, a little bit more chronological uh, story of the Beastie Boys. But uh, the Beastie Boys story was a stage performance done by uh, the King Ad Rock and Mike D and uh, Mixmaster Mike, their DJ was up there who played different music to set scenes and things like that. And this is a, a capture of that performance. I mean, it's an official release, but it tells the entire story. And when I say the entire story, I mean, it starts when they are teenagers and rap music is being played in New York city on streets or coming from people's windows uh, or there's late night radio station shows. And so it tells the entire story. It tells everything. It's so, so good. If you like the beastie boys, check out beastie boys story. It was released in 2020 rest in peace MCA. And there's going to be a lot of rest in peace. I mean, rest in peace, Amy Winehouse. It's uh, unfortunate, but I think the, the takeaway for me of this is an, a, a thought that I had, which, and it's a thing that I actually struggle with a lot is when is the story over? And I think about that a lot when I'm blogging, I think, oh, well this happened, but I can't really write a blog about it because something else is about to happen related to it. And so you have to figure out like, when is the story over? When is it safe to say, to draw the line and say, that's the end of the story and now I could write it as a story from beginning to ending, you know? And so I think a lot of people wanted a Beastie Boys biography or Beastie Boys story and things like that. But it was like they were still coming out with music. They were still evolving. They were still doing new and interesting things. So there was never a line in the sand to draw to say, when is that story over? But when MCA passed away and the other two guys said, that's it, we're not performing anymore as the Beastie Boys, then that becomes the line in the sand. That's when that story is over. So that's a um, kind of a morbid takeaway, but not really. It's just something I think about a lot when I'm writing things about, uh, again, blogs or stories or things. You go, when is when is the story over? When, when can you actually tell that story? Uh, the next documentary is The World's a Little Blurry. It sounds like that's alphabetical, but it starts with Billie Eilish. The World is a Little Blurry. This was released this year, 2021, and uh, this basically tells the story of Billie Eilish. Now, it's interesting, you know, referring back to the Beastie Boys thing that I just talked about. Billie Eilish's story is not over. Lots of things have happened to her. She's released a second album since this came out. So her story is not over, but this is essentially the story of uh, her childhood up until the release of her first album. Um, her album was recorded in her brother's bedroom in their childhood home. So while I want you to imagine this while her parents were in the living room, watching the news or whatever they were doing, uh, Billy Eilish and her brother Phineas were in his bedroom, sometimes in her bedroom. 
He was making beats and, and recordings on his computer. There's videos of her laying in bed with a microphone and singing songs that went, you know, that appeared on the album. And this is the actual recording. And her album won, I believe, seven Grammys. It could be six, but I think it was seven Grammys, uh, including album of the year, song of the year and all that. And uh, my takeaway for this, and and it's actually reinforced by Get Back, the Beatles documentary that I watched, but I have worked, worked is a strong word, but interned, hung out and helped, let's say are, are better words, at several music studios. There were a few music studios in Spokane that I hung out in. Uh, there was a friend of mine here in Oklahoma City who ran a music studio, and I was there five nights a week helping, uh, you know, occasionally running the board or doing punch-ins and things like that. Not too often, but um, but a lot of times just sitting there and helping out where I could. And, and towards the end of that studio, uh, he began to transition from analog equipment to digital equipment. And that was my specialty was computers and digital recording and things like that. So uh, I was able to, to give my two cents and help out. But the recording process, as I knew it, was extremely, I mean, painful is one word for it, <laughs> but for example, I watched bands being recorded where all four band members would play a song. And then once they were done, they would go back and the drummer would re-record the drum track. And that would become the isolated drum track that would be used. And there would be triggers that were attached to the drum heads. And so the actual sound of the drum wasn't being recorded. It was the trigger sending this automatic signal to a, a, a digital processor that would generate the sound of a snare or a kick drum, things like that. And then each instrument would be recorded separately and it would take hours and hours and sometimes days to record a single song and listening to vocalists trying to double their own vocals and they would sing uh, a chorus and then they would come back and sing over the top of themselves a second time. And then they would decide that the first one was out of tune. So let's keep the second one delete the first one and re-record and just on and on and on all these processes uh, that went into recording something that at the end sounds like it was recorded live, like four guys recording in a room, but that's not how it was being recorded. And so to watch Billie Eilish's documentary where her brother is, com you know, come uh, uh, coming up with beats on his Mac computer and she's laying in a bed with a microphone singing, and this becomes the album of the year. I think this should make, uh, probably did make every studio owner in the world uh, shake in their boots. Because if you can make the greatest album of the year in your bedroom, that's bad news for studios that are charging hundreds of dollars an hour for hopeful musicians to come in and record their music. So uh, that's really the takeaway I have from the Billie Eilish thing. I mean, I, obviously she comes from good stock. Her parents were both in the arts and she, her brother is very talented and she's very talented. And so there's this whole uh, perfect mixture where 
She doesn't go to regular school, so they get to stay home all day and, and do music. So it, it's a great environment for creativity, and that's great. But you have to have the talent that goes with it, too. And, and the documentary shows both of those things, I think. But just the fact, like I said, that you can, you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, I can be in a band. I'll put a band together. We'll play in our garage. We'll play some shows. We'll save some money. Eventually, someday, we'll be able to go into a recording studio uh-uh, that's not how this worked. She got famous, I think, on the SoundCloud and recorded an album in her bedroom, and it won six or seven Grammys. So that, to me, is the takeaway of that, is is uh, that I think those days, if they're not over of the big recording studio, they're, they're definitely limited. The next documentary on my list is called Cassette. Uh, a documentary mixtape. This was released in 2016. Uh, someone recommended this to me, and I don't remember who it was. But uh, this is a, a good documentary about cassettes. Now, everybody knows that there has been a, a resurgence of interest in vinyl over the past, gosh, what, 10 years. Like, I used to go to thrift stores and pick up albums for 99 cents. I used to go to garage sales. I remember going to a garage sale in my neighborhood, and albums were 99 cents, and I got uh, ACDC, Back in Black, I got uh, Highway to Hell, I got some Black Sabbath, I mean, just great classic albums for a buck, and you're not going to get those for a buck anymore. It's so uh, popular now, people are, have scooped up all these albums, and they're trying to resell them, and, and now, if you can find albums, sometimes, I mean, when I do find albums that are affordable, it's um, the Oak Ridge Boys Christmas. <laughs> Or things like that. It's not 70s and 80s uh, hard rock and heavy metal, which is mostly what I'm looking for. Or early uh, rap from the, the early to mid 80s. Uh, but I didn't realize that the resurgence of interest in cassettes was growing as much as it was. And so that's what this is about. And it's funny because the documentary is split into halves. And one half of it is about how cassettes are becoming popular again. They talk about mixtapes. They talk about kids having tapes in the 80s and things like that. And I lived through all that, and I still have a few cassettes. Um, I'm probably more likely to listen to a record than a cassette at this point. But uh, but I, I lived through all the cassette stuff, and, uh, and, and that's all well and good. But the other half of the documentary, you know what? It was Chopstick Samurai just came to my head who uh, recommended this to me because we had a conversation the other half of the documentary is a is interviews with the engineer who created the cassette tape. Like he worked at a company and they get these German guys together and they talk about you know how they designed the cassette tape, like the actual physical medium of the cassette tape. And these are the guys that went on to create CDs. And so they're just completely baffled. Of course, these are older guys in their 60s, 70s, uh, maybe early 80s, some of them. Uh, but they're completely baffled that anybody would be interested in cassettes at all. They're like, we fixed all the problems of the cassette in something called CDs. You don't need cassettes anymore. And so it's very interesting that they don't understand uh, because they're, they're engineer-minded. They're mechanically-minded. And so they're only looking at the fact that CDs sound better than tapes or uh, that they are, you know, they're not going to 
the ta- they're not going to break in a the tape player like a CD won't break it won't snap things like that but what they don't understand is the nostalgia aspect of it and so that's kind of compared and contrast throughout the, the documentary but if if um, you grew up with cassette tapes in your the dash of your car or your back pocket if you ever sat up late at night like I did making uh, mixtapes to try to give to a girl at school and find just the right song and put them in just the right order, then uh, cassette a documentary mixtape is for you. Uh, next on the list is Colossus of Destiny, A Melvin's Tale. Oh my gosh. So I will tell you that I was late to the uh, Melvin's fan club. I did not get into the Melvin's until I moved to Spokane. So this would have been the late 1990s. Uh, I think this is around the time of uh, Houdini, um, of uh, uh, some of those, uh, that little era, I guess. Uh, I think it's before Crybaby and Bootlicker, but maybe around that time. But um, regardless, it was the people that I met in Spokane who said, oh, if you like this, you need to listen to this. And they had recommended the Melvins. And it still took me a while to get on board with the Melvins. But the Melvins documentary starts with uh, a list of bands that I all appreciate and admire and all of them saying, yeah, we worship the Melvins. You know, so Melvins are kind of the the, uh, grandfather of uh, grunge, not grunge, but it's that area of sludge of uh, heavy music from from that Seattle kind of area. And it's funny, uh, the lead singer, King Buzzo, if you've ever seen him, he has big, gigantic hair that's kind of fun to look at. And King Buzzo says, uh, when we began, I knew that I would be creating art that millions of people would hate, and I'm okay with that because he doesn't care about all the people that hates his music. He does it for the few people that, not few, but the, uh, the subcategory of people who like their music. I had the, I've seen the Melvins twice live and they are coming back next March. And I plan to go see them next March. Uh, they're one of those bands that I came to uh, later, but uh, I can't get enough of now. They're super heavy. They're super interesting. Uh, when I saw them live, they, they have always been a three piece and uh, Dale Grover has always been the drummer and um, uh, Buzz has always been the uh, lead singer, but they've always rot- rotated in and out uh, bass players. There's, they probably had, I think in the documentary, it says between 12 and 20 bass players, depending on what they're doing. But at one point, they wanted to make their band even heavier, and so they added two guys to their band. One played bass, and the other one also played drums, and that's when I saw them live the second time. They had two drum sets set up, and uh, it was just unbelievable to watch. It's it's really they're super creative and uh, and super talented. There's just not enough good stuff to say. The Melvins are not for everybody, and a lot of people will pick a random Melvins album to start with, and they have some albums that are just noise, and it turns them off forever. And I think that's what happened to me early on. So you got to go through the library and and find different things. Uh, some are more palatable than other, but when you find it. Uh, if, if you're a fan of that kind of music, it's, uh, it'll, it'll change you. <laughs> and so, but I think the takeaway for uh, Colossus of Destiny and Melvin's Tale is that just that opening statement where he says, 
uh, I knew that I was going to be creating art that millions of people hated. And, uh, you know, you can put that into anything that you do, whether that's podcasting or, or literal art, painting art or projects that you work on or whatever. Um, I know that I myself have, have avoided starting projects or working on projects because I knew that people wouldn't like it. And the older I get, the less I care about <laughs> what people like. I try to do the things that, uh, that I like. So. Next on the list is Decline of Western Civilization, Part 2, The Metal Years. Now, there, there were three different um, documentaries, The uh, De Decline of Western Civilization, Part 1, 2, and 3. I think one was punk music, and I forgot what 3 was. But number 2 is The Metal Years. Now, this is from 1988. Um, so if you haven't seen it, it's worth going back and watching there are bands that are featured in this documentary that didn't go anywhere, that kind of disappeared. Uh, there are some famous scenes, and one of the most famous scenes is the interview with Ozzy Osbourne, who is uh, being interviewed while he's cooking breakfast. He's cooking eggs in a robe, and they're interviewing him. And uh, my friends and I, we all used to do the same comic bit because he's difficult to understand in this interview. And we would always do this thing between us where we would just say um, like unintelligible responses to things, but then end it clearly with a word. So a friend would say, you know, he might ask me, oh, where do you want to go for lunch? And I would say, oh, it's a, a side, it goes whole thing. It goes to, and it's the uh, iPhone 12. <laughs> And we would constantly do this to one another. And it's <laughs> a direct reference to this movie and to the interviews with Ozzy. Uh, it also has uh, an interview with Chris Holmes. And this is a very, very famous interview. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Chris Holmes later in the list. He was the guitarist of the band Wasp. And he is, in the interview, he is floating in his pool on a floating chair and guzzling bottles of vodka. At one point, he's pouring a bottle of vodka over his head while his mother sits next to the edge of the pool watching all this unfold. And he's making a fool of himself and being drunk and talking, you know, different things about the band and, and how happy he is. But then he starts talking about how sad he is. It, it's uh, uh, You can't unsee it. And it's a, a classic moment that appears in the documentary Decline of Western Civilization Part 2, The Metal Years. Um, you know, if you haven't seen it and you want to see a documentary about heavy metal bands from that era. Um, by the way, I should say there's some controversy about that scene. Um, Chris, there have people have gone back and said that there was not vodka in those bottles, that it was water in the bottles. Chris Holmes says it was vodka in the bottles. So I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to believe, but uh, it, it's famous regardless. So um, decline of Western civilization, part two, the metal years. Uh, next is devil, the devil and Daniel Johnston. Uh, this is a 2005 documentary that I did not discover until uh, fairly recently. And Devil jo or, uh, uh, Daniel Johnston was a musician. Uh, I believe they call these guys like DIY musicians. Like he 
would write songs in his garage or in his bedroom and record it on his boombox. That's that's what he did. It says in the documentary that he uh, would record his album. He, he wrote these songs. He would record these albums, and he would give away copies to anybody who wanted one. And at one point, he just gave away the original. So somebody else asked for a copy of the album. He said, okay, I'll bring it to you tomorrow. And he would go back home and re-record the album from beginning to, to end because he, <laughs> he'd given away his only copy. Um, Daniel Johnston developed mental issues. Uh, I believe it was uh, diagnosed as schizophrenic, but he was uh, – largely untreated. He would go on his medication and then he would just stop taking his medication. And when he would stop taking his medication, he would have sometimes violent outbursts and sometimes bizarre behavior. And so this documentary is a little bit about sometimes people exploited that, you know, and he believed that he was a better performer when he wasn't on his medication. And so sometimes he would, uh, intentionally get off his medication. He spent a lot of time in jail. He spent a lot of time in mental institutions. Uh, he was very prolific and uh, he was essentially unheard of until he mailed a t-shirt uh, which had the cover of his album to Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain wore that shirt uh, either on his Saturday Night Live performance or at the Grammys, I forget which one. Uh, but then there was an immediate interest in who's this Daniel Johnston guy. And um, so there's um, there's fun stories in the documentary. There's heartbreak in the documentary. Uh, Daniel Johnston has since passed away. But at the time that the documentary was made, he was still alive. And so it kind of ends with him. Uh, a lot of his... Um, uh, psychosis fell into religious territory. And so he uh, was constantly thinking that the world was coming to an end or that he was being followed by uh, demons and things like that. So it's it, a lot of it's heartbreaking, but again, it's the, um, I think a lot about Wesley Willis. If you don't know who Wesley Willis is, who is a guy that um, was uh, uh, had some mental issues and recorded a zillion albums, and and so a lot of people think, well, hey, they gave Wesley Willis uh, a chance. You know, they they found a guy and they gave him an opportunity. But the other part says, well, were they were they giving him an opportunity or were they exploiting his position? Uh, and so this documentary gets into that a little bit, but it was just a fascinating story. Um, when he was younger, Daniel Johnston got a job at McDonald's and would hand out his tapes to everybody. And it said, if you need to call him, uh, call him at his office. And then he just put the number for McDonald's. <laughs> so people were constantly calling McDonald's uh, looking for him. So uh, the devil and Daniel Johnston from 2005 is a fun, uh, fun story about a guy. I threw Fatty Lumpkins, the dingle cakes on here. This is not technically a documentary. This is more of a uh, a tape that was put together by a band named Fatty Lumpkin, who is from Spokane. I don't know if you could ever buy this tape. I only saw this tape being passed around from person to person, and I got a copy of it. I borrowed someone's tape. 
I think theirs was third generation. Mine was fourth generation. And, uh, uh, so that's how I got my copy. Um, it is uh, extremely offensive. <laughs> uh, there were parts of it that my friends and I watched uh, of uh, people throwing up. And then uh, every time they would throw up, the people in the tape would yell, get some. And so uh, that became, a, you know, we would all, my friends and I would yell, get some <laughs> to one another. There are a couple of episodes of uh, Davy and Goliath, the stop motion uh uh, Christian show where that have been overdubbed to be as offensive as possible. There's some live performances. There's all kinds of weird media clips and things that have been uh, put together. Uh, the takeaway from this though, for me was just this whole underground band scene that was going on, uh, especially it spoke when well, I say especially, but at that time in Spokane, I was exposed to it, but just seeing the things that bands were making and passing around, uh, you know, as a, when I was younger, to me, music was either what was on the radio or what you could buy in a store. And so uh, getting to know some of the bands in Spokane and seeing, you know, people giving out uh, bumper stickers or stickers to stick on things or seeing, you know, helping make flyers um, or these videotapes and, and, you know, or bootleg tape, all these things. I was just kind of exposed at the same time. And so I threw this tape on the list. I don't think you could, it, there was a, a time where it appeared on YouTube. People would upload it from YouTube. But I don't think it's on YouTube anymore. Um, but, uh, they, they were a, a really fun punk band. And this is a really fun tape that you will probably never see. <laughs> Maybe some night on Twitch, I will show the tape and we will just have to, set i'll have to put something in the corner that says this is r rated <laughs> do not bring your kids to watch the fatty lumpkin uh, dingle cakes tape next documentary on here is headbangers ball uncensored this is from 2018 and this is a documentary about headbangers ball headbangers ball was i can't believe i'm explaining this but it was a show that was on mtv that was uh, i believe in the beginning two hours and then was extended to three hours um there were a couple of different hosts uh over the years but the the last host and the most well-known host was ricky rackman um and so this basically tells the whole story of how the show got put together who uh, um, you know, how they got different bands to go on there, what bands wanted to be on, what ones didn't, you know, what in, ended up killing the show at the end. Um, so not too much to say about this one other than the fact that, uh, and, you know, I will say this about Headbangers Ball. Again, I grew up in Oklahoma. And so finding new music was sometimes difficult. It wasn't like in California where there were different bands touring, you know, every night of the week, there were different bands playing and you could go pick from one of a hundred bands to play. It wasn't like that here. And so I would find out about bands from magazines and you would get a magazine and it would say, Hey, this band came out with something, you know, and you look and it's two months old because it takes so long to get, you know, write the material in the magazine and then publish the magazine and then ship the magazine. So even that was not up to date. Um, there was a, a radio, a syndicated radio show that they used to play late at night on Friday nights, uh, called metal shop. And I would listen to metal shop and they would play bands and, and you would find out about bands. But, uh, the best way to find out about stuff was MTV. And I would, I was working in fast food. I was like 16 or 17 
and I would set the VCR. I would put a blank tape in and set it to record from 11 to 2 and come home. And the next day I would watch Headbangers Ball. Now, the first hour of Headbangers Ball was always like, uh, like we would call it poser metal. Like they might have the top 10 metal songs and it would be Def Leppard. And it would be Queensryche. Well, Queensryche is a good band, but you know, not when I'm looking for my heavy metal fix. Um, and Slaughter and stuff like that. And then the second hour would be, you know, heavier kind of stuff. And then the third hour would be bands you've probably never heard of. And I remember seeing Corrosion of Conformity on there. And I remember seeing Danzig on there. And I remember seeing um, Slayer on there. And just bands that, uh, that you didn't hear on the radio here and you didn't see on MTV during the day, but you would see them on that third hour of headbangers ball. And so that was just a great source for us. So I was always a fan of headbangers ball and uh, this documentary, this headbangers ball uncensored uh, from 2018 really goes through basically the whole story of the show. It's worth a watch. Next up is hype from 1996. This is a great, great, great documentary. This uh, shows up on lists all the time of the greatest, uh, you know, top 10, top 50 music documentaries. And it's about the Seattle scene um, that came up, you know, grunge basically uh, when Nirvana hit. But this uh, predates Nirvana a little bit. I mean, it starts talking about the scene forming and some of the other bands. Um, the, the thing about music scenes is like in Seattle in 91, late 91, early 92, uh, you know, we all heard Nirvana and then we all heard Soundgarden and then we all heard Alice in Chains and then we all heard Stone Temple Pilots. You know what I mean? Like those were big bands, but then somebody would say like, Hey, have you heard of Tad who was from Seattle? And you would go, no, well, I'd heard from, I'd heard of Tad because they were on, uh, um, Headbangers Ball. Or someone would say, um, have you heard of Mother Love Bone? And you're like, no, what's Mother Love Bone? Oh, well, Mother Love Bone was a band that had members of Pearl Jam and members of Soundgarden. And they split off and they made these other bands. And then you know that song from Alice in Chains, Wood? That's about the lead singer of Mother Love Bone, Andrew Wood, that died. And so uh, the more you were into music and trivia and information, the more you knew about this stuff, right? Um, But... Then there would be like this documentary uh, says like, oh, okay, there's Mother Love Bone or what? And then it starts like there's layers like you go, oh, yeah, I know about that. Well, do you know about Green River, which was another band that had members of Pearl Jam and and uh, some of those local guys? Oh, or do you know who Mud Honey is? You know, and then it would go like like deeper and deeper, like you would find those bands and then you would, you know, you found out about Sub Pop, the, the label from Seattle. And then you go, Oh, do you know who gas Huffer is? Do you know who the fastbacks are? Which is an amazing, amazing band. Um, I don't even know how you would listen to the fastbacks at this point, but um, you know, and one of the interesting things that they point out in this documentary is that what sub pop was doing was they weren't uh, pushing bands. They were pushing Seattle. And so this documentary cap it's five years and captures from 91 to 96. And it, uh, captures that whole era the explosion of grunge and and you know by the end they're talking about how people are walking down uh you know uh, hollywood runways like fashion shows wearing uh cut off shorts with lumberjack long johns underneath them uh 
just how that how it took over, you know, how it exploded and became so popular. You know, there's a um, uh, an interview with Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam, and he says, "I felt so guilty that um, Pearl Jam made it, and all these bands that we, you know, that were older than us didn't get famous." You know, the Fastbacks uh, again. I mentioned them, but uh, just because I was a fan of theirs. But there's just so many bands. And uh, there's a an interview with a, a woman who was a secretary at one of the, the labels. And she described Seattle at that time as uh, a shopping mall 15 minutes before close on the day before Christmas. And so there's just that. It's a great image of this urgency of you know it's going to close. You know it's going to be over. And you want to get your piece of the pie before uh, it closes, you know. Uh, and, and they said there were record labels were sending, uh, people to sign bands that had just formed and hadn't even played a live show yet. So it was just a crazy, crazy time. Uh, and this, this documentary called hype from 1996 encompasses that time. And it shows, you know, from the inception of that Seattle sound and those bands to, where you were seeing it, you know, on the cover of, of every magazine. So it's, it's a great documentary. If, if uh, you're interested in, in the grunge, I am not halfway through my list and this is running long. So I'm going to have to speed things up here. Uh, industrial accident, the story of wax tracks records. I think this is another one that chopstick samurai recommended to me. Uh, I was a fan of wax tracks records, which was, uh, out of Chicago. I knew about them because of early ministry and I knew about them because of early my life with the thrill kill cult. And so this is a, uh, a fantastic look of uh, basically that whole scene, uh, the entire scene, uh, uh, you know, of a record label, like the guys who started it, um, the story behind them starting it, the, how they got the bands on board, all the way to the very end of uh, of the entire thing. So if uh, if you were into that scene, if you like those bands, or you want to uh, watch a documentary about a record label from start to finish, that is a great uh, documentary. Next is Janice, Little Girl Blue. Uh, Janice Joplin, my dad was a fan of Janice Joplin. Uh, I definitely grew up listening to Janice Joplin. Uh, it is... Uh, uh, her story is sad. Uh, you know, there's a the famous story where she uh, was not popular in high school. She went back to her high school reunion and they still treated her like crap after she was famous. Um, so I, I guess, um, you know, if there's a, a takeaway from this Janice Joplin documentary, it's just that fame does not lead to happiness. And that's something that people say, like, well, money can't buy happiness, but you can actually, uh, that is tangible in this documentary. You can, you can literally watch it and, uh, uh, just, you can feel the fact that, uh, that she wasn't happy, that she was so, so talented and she never found that part that made her happy, uh, which is unfortunate, you know, uh, Johnny Cash, the man in black, this is from 2020. It tells the story of Johnny Cash. So there's not too much to say about this. Um, I didn't know as much about Johnny Cash as I thought I did while watching this. I knew some of his older songs. I knew he had done the recordings with Rick Rubin. Uh, so, but there's a lot of stuff in the middle that I didn't know about Johnny Cash. 
Um, and you don't have to be a Johnny Cash fan. Again, I say this a lot. You don't have to be a fan of him to enjoy uh, this documentary. So um, definitely, you know, if uh, you like music documentaries, check out Johnny Cash, The Man in Black. Next up, I have two documentaries here looped together, uh, grouped together, both that say Kurt Cobain at the beginning. The first one is About a Son, which was from 2006, and the other one is Montage of Heck, which is from 2015. They are both really, really good documentaries. Montage of Heck uh, is just fantastic. Um, you know, if if you weren't there and you weren't into music, it's hard to explain how Nirvana changed everything. <laughs> um, I've told this story. I was at a concert, like a local concert. The opening band played, and when they were done, the uh, the the house uh, mixer put on. Never mind. It was the first time I'd ever heard it. It was the first time most of us, I think, had ever heard it. It had just come out. And when it was time for the second band to go on, people screamed and they wanted to keep hearing uh, Nirvana's Nevermind. And so people sat, stood, people sat on the edge of the stage, I remember. I just remember standing there and we listened to the entire album. Never mind. That was the first time I ever heard it. And he played it from beginning to end. It was uh, just such a weird moment in time. And, uh, you know, I talked about the, the Beatles get back, right? But the Beatles invasion was 1964, right? Like when they came to the Ed Sullivan theater and they came to America, that was all 1964. The documentary that's out, uh, which is basically the next, well, the Beatles broke up in 1970. So six years. So the Beatles were only, a band for six years, more or less, right? And so this is the same thing. Like, um, uh, obviously, there's earlier albums. I'm a big fan of of uh, Bleach from Nirvana, but Smells Like Teen Spirit comes out in 1991, and uh, Kurt Cobain took his life in 1994. I mean, that is three years. And so to imagine all the way that they changed everything in three years is um, uh, difficult to process, you know. And so. These documentaries all take a look at uh, Kurt Cobain's childhood, the formation of the band, uh, and, uh, you know, and give you a, a bigger picture of the parts that made up Kurt Cobain and then, more importantly, the parts that made up uh, Nirvana. So, uh, About a Son, again, is from 2006, and Montage of Heck is from 2015 and uh th they're both good the uh, montage of heck is great i would say uh, loud quiet loud is a film about the pixies this is from 2006 now i have uh, uh readily admitted i was not on the pixies train i remember when i was working at best buy in 1995 or 1994-95 and uh you know, I thought I was all into grunge and, and uh, all these different bands. And, and I had a friend that was like, man, if you like that stuff, you got to listen to the Pixies. And I never listened to it because I didn't like the name of their band. I was like the Pixies. This is weird. What is this? And I never got into it. And boy, was I wrong. The Pixies are amazing. Um, Kurt Cobain once said that Nirvana is basically a Pixies cover band. I believe is the way he put it. Uh, that, um, you know, the Pixies came up with the, maybe not came up with, but popularized at that time, this 
the quiet uh, verse, the loud chorus, then another quiet verse. Um, about three years ago, maybe, I just got into the Pixies so hard. I just dove in. I listened to the entire um, discography. I felt uh, dumb for not having done that earlier, and that culminated in a concert. I got to go to a concert in Tulsa and see the Pixies uh, with uh, Weezer. And uh, if you don't know, the Pixies, when they perform live, they all stand in the exact same place. They don't move. They don't walk around. Uh, they don't emote at all between songs. They just announce what the song is going to be, and then they play it. It's like watching a video jukebox. It was one of the most boring shows. The music was fantastic, but visually, uh, it was not interesting at all. And then uh, Weezer, who I was not really looking forward to see, put on an amazing show. It, I walked away from that a Weezer fan. Uh, Weezer was absolutely amazing live. Um, and, and Pixies were good live, but in a different way, but not in an entertaining type way, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, as a lot of people know, the Pixies had kind of broken up. Uh, they, they weren't getting along. They get back together. And so this documentary again called loud, quiet, loud, uh, documents them getting back together and going on the road. And uh, it's it's a great, not only is it a, a good Pixies documentary, but it's a good history lesson of uh, uh, that that genre of music. Uh, I threw this on for fun. This is the making of Thriller. Uh, I have a rip of this that came from a Laserdisc, but my original copy came from MTV, who used to air this. Um, this is a, I think it's a 15-minute documentary about the making of uh, Thriller, the video. Um, it's very interesting to watch just stuff from that era, from the early eighties and John Landis when he was young and Michael Jackson being young and playful, you know, and not that weird, which he was weird later. Um, but it shows choreography. It shows the special effects. It shows Rick Baker, uh, creating the werewolf special effects in the movie. Uh, I say movie and, you know, documentary, but it was, uh, a really uh, uh, long video. So um, uh, I think you could probably find this on YouTube, uh, but if you have any interest at all, that's a, a fun little short one that you can cram in. And it's just called the making of thriller. And it was uh, aired on TV It aired on MTV. Uh, I taped it on cassette tape. My dad had his stereo hooked up to the TV and I was able to record the thing. And, and we listened to it on the bus when I was a kid and I was very popular for a couple of days. Next up is Mean Man. This is the story of Chris Holmes. We talked about Chris Holmes in The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2. Chris Holmes was the guitarist of Wasp. Uh, the leader, uh, founder of Wasp was uh, Blackie Lawless, who played bass and performed vocals. And uh, these two have got into it. They've broken up multiple times over the years. And now Chris Holmes uh, moved to France and he is. This is about him starting to tour again and play clubs, and uh, but with his own band called Mean Man. Um, he is not a polished person. He he moved to France and does not speak French. He said all I, the only thing he knows is a thumbs up and the middle finger, and he said that gets him by. Uh, so it, it's a interesting documentary from a it's entertaining. And he does explain a lot about the music business. That's probably the takeaway for me is that 
you tend to think that all these guys that were like Wasp was a big band, you know, and you tend to think that it, the the lead guitarist of Wasp would have enough money to retire on, but he doesn't. Uh, and they explain a lot of money issues in this documentary, so it's great. Um, next up, two Metallica documentaries, a year and a half in the life of Metallica and some kind of monster. So uh, a year and a half in the life of Metallica is the, I believe that is the recording of the Black Album. I could be wrong. It's been a long time since I saw this. Uh, and then some kind of monster is when the band was going through all their problems, uh, when Jason quit the band and they were in search of a new bass player and, and uh, all these different kind of things that were going on. Uh, they're both good documentaries. Uh, and, and I've watched them both uh, multiple times over the years. Man, if there's a takeaway from this, I guess it's just the business side of being in a band. Like you don't think that the guys from Metallica are having business meetings. You don't think about them uh, practicing. You don't think about them outside of those two or three hours where they're performing. And so this shows a lot of that. A lot of people say it shows a lot of that to the detriment of the band. Like a lot of people don't want to imagine uh, Metallica cooking breakfast <laughs> or doing whatever it is they're doing, you know? So, um, uh, I don't know, but they're definitely, you know, if you're any kind of fan, if you're a fan of Metallica, you've probably seen them anyway. Um, but, uh, they're definitely good. The, uh, some kind of monster gets a lot of flack. That's the one where they bring in the, the psychologist, you know, and he, Taught, they bring in um, Dave Mustaine to have a confrontation, you know, who had got kicked out of Metallica years before and went on to form Megadeth. Um, the psychologist writes some lyrics for Metallica that he um, uh, proposes for the band to sing, which gets weird. Um, Bob Rock takes over for Bob Rock is the producer of the album. And then he takes over as bass player for a while. Like he's going to be in Metallica and then, He's not. They have tryouts. So it's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of uncomfortable conflict in both of these uh, documentaries. So a year and a half in the life of Metallica and then some kind of monster. If you're Metallica, uh, I mean, they're not quite Spinal Tap, but there are moments where they're close. <laughs> so definitely good watches. Um, Mick Fleetwood story, Two Sticks and a Drum. Uh, I will cut to the chase. This is a documentary about Mick Fleetwood. He talks about the formation of Fleetwood Mac. I didn't know a lot of this stuff. It talks about who was dating who, who was married to who, and who broke up with who, and who was singing about who <laughs> when they were writing lyrics. Um, it's a good documentary. It comes off a little bit like, hey, I made a documentary about myself. Like, There's not a lot of bad stuff about Mick Fleetwood, and even when he says, you know, well, then I cheated on my wife with, uh, um, oh, uh, Stevie Nicks. And then he's like, oh, well, what are you going to do? You know, <laughs> so he, it, he, he's not under a microscope. They don't do a lot of, uh, in-depth probing in him. So it, it almost feels not quite like a fluff piece, but, uh, not as not hard hitting journalism either. And so, um, it's a good documentary. I didn't know that much about Fleetwood Mac. And so I watched it and it was good. Um, but, uh, maybe not now I'm wondering why I put it on my favorite. I guess I put it on my favorites because you get to hear the whole story of Fleetwood Mac, but, um, Mick Fleetwood 
comes off better than he probably should in this documentary. Uh, the next is a documentary that was just recommended to me after the first documentary episode. It was called Off the Charts. It is the song poem story from 2003. This was recommended to me by listener Robbie Ray, uh, one half of the Boys Podcast. Rest in peace, Boys Podcast. Uh, Robbie Ray is uh, local to me. He works. Uh, he's been in bands, and I believe he works with uh, guitar equipment and pedals and things like that. So it was not surprising to me that he recommended a music-related documentary to me. <clears throat> um, Off the Charts is about this entire industry where people, regular people, write lyrics. Uh, they write poems or whatever, and, and uh, in the back of magazines, you can find these addresses where you can mail in these lyrics and people will turn them into songs. And so it's this whole industry of people that are receiving these lyrics. And then they say, Oh, they write you a, a, a false promissory note. You know, they write you a note that says, Hey, this is pretty good. Um, if you send us $300, we'll record it as a song. We'll send you the song and we'll ship it off to Hollywood. And if it makes it as a hit single, you could be a millionaire. Well, at the end, it gives a statistic that over the years, um, more than 200,000 of these songs have been recorded, and none of them have ever become a hit. Uh, but it, the cool thing about this documentary is it shows it from multiple angles. It shows it from these guys that do the recording, but it also shows it from people that uh, submit these uh, songs in hopes of becoming rich and famous. So uh, it, it's... Um, a good documentary all around. It was a part of the business industry I was not familiar with at all. So thank you to Robbie Ray uh, for uh, suggesting that. It was a, a real fun documentary. Pearl Jam 20. This was the 20th anniversary of their first album. It came out in 2011. Um, you know, when you're on the outside, like you, like we said, oh, there's a new band out called Pearl Jam. And we went and bought the album and it, you know, changed our lives. Right. But, uh, this documentary talks about, you know, the formation of the band, where do these guys come from? What other bands were they in? How do these guys get together? How do they operate together? Um, and, uh, it's a really, really, it's one of my favorite documentaries and Pearl Jam is, I mean, I don't want to, it sounds negative. If I say they're not one of my favorite bands, I don't dislike Pearl Jam. Uh, I mean, I, haven't been a fan in, in a long time, right? Like I was really into the first, you know, two, three albums, like a lot of people. Uh, but this documentary is great. It really goes into depth in a lot of stuff. Um, uh, and uh, I, I guess if there's a takeaway from it, it's just that, uh, you know, that all these guys have history. All these musicians have uh, history. These bands don't just pop up out of nowhere. They all came from somewhere. They all came from other bands, um, you know, and, and it's fun to see the history of these musicians. So Pearl Jam 20, I highly recommend. It's a really good documentary. Um, next up is Pick It Up, which is, uh, it says Pick It Up Ska in the 90s. Uh, if you were alive in the 90s, you remember all of a sudden, uh, of course, No Doubt, who uh, wasn't, a, wasn't really Ska, but it led a lot of people to all these other uh, different uh uh, ska bands. And so this really talks about like the history of ska, like how it formed in Jamaica and then it came and people brought it over and, and this whole movement that happened. And, and, um, 
you know, I think the interesting thing about this is if you're on the outside, if you're just a regular music listener, it feels like uh, ska came out of nowhere. It was popular and then it went away. But if you're in these bands, uh, it didn't come out of nowhere and it didn't go away. Like some of these bands still perform like Real Big Fish and and um, I'm just drawing blanks. But, um, uh, you know, so these, these bands uh, in the documentary, they still perform. Uh, they still do things, but it's not popular. So we don't hear about it. Right. Um, but I, I love any documentary that just picks a genre and goes through it, runs through bands, does interviews and stuff like that. And that is what pick it up does. Uh, so if you had any, if you lived through the nineties, like I did, you remember those ska bands? Uh, it's, it's a fun watch. Uh, next up is the punk singer. This is from 2013. One of my favorite documentaries. Really, really good. Uh, this is a documentary about Kathleen Hanna. Uh, she was the lead singer of Bikini Kill. She was the lead singer of La Tigra. She's done a bunch of other things. She is um, known as the founder of the Riot Girl movement. So you may remember the Riot Girl movement in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, she is a force to be reckoned with. She uh, uh, is just uh, like a tiny tornado. It's it's fascinating to watch. Uh, there, she basically disappeared from the public eye for a long time. People didn't know why. And uh, um, actually, she married uh, King Ed Rock from the Beastie Boys. But that's not why she disappeared. She disappeared because she got Lyme disease and didn't know it. And they didn't diagnose it. And so she had Lyme disease for years and years. And now she's still undergoing treatment today uh, to counteract the effects of Lyme disease. But uh, one of the most famous uh, stories is uh, she was responsible for telling Kurt Cobain that he smelled like teen spirit, which is where the phrase came from. She, I believe, wrote it on a wall. It says, Kurt smells like teen spirit, uh, referring to the deodorant. And uh, Kurt Cobain wrote that down in his notebook. And that, uh, you may have heard, uh, uh, became a, a, a song later. So uh interesting uh uh interesting person very very interesting person very influential person uh if you just want to see the difference that one person can make this is a great documentary just one person making flyers putting bands together doing shows uh unbelievable unbelievable uh musician kathleen uh uh Oops, sorry, I lost my place. Uh, Kathleen Hanna. Uh, let's see, I've got uh, about half dozen, six, seven, eight left to go. Uh, Quiet Riot, well, now you're here. There's no way back from 2014. Uh, this is a fun documentary uh, about Quiet Riot. It uh, features Frankie Benali, who is the drummer of Quiet Riot, and it talks about the formation of Quiet Riot, how they, uh, all the stuff that they did, the music they did, the tours, and then uh, Kevin DeBrow, Kevin DeBrow, DeBrow, I think, uh, after he passed away, and then eventually them trying to find a new lead singer and putting Quiet Riot back together and some of the shows they played that didn't go so well. It's really funny. Again, this one kind of uh, uh, laughs at itself a little bit, a little bit of Spinal Tap humor in there. Of course, uh, Frankie Benali uh, also has since passed away over the last couple of years. So now it's um, a good time capsule to look at Quiet Riot and uh, all the things they did. 
Uh, and I guess if there's a takeaway, it's, um, you know, you don't always have to take yourself seriously. A lot of the times they were in on the joke, uh, you know, the way they dressed up or did things. And, and uh, but I think uh, Come On, Feel the Noise is considered to be the first heavy metal song uh, to be on the, the charts, like maybe number one on the charts. I, I shouldn't have even said that because i got to look up that fact. But something to that effect is something about that song was known as uh, the first uh, uh, song, maybe heavy metal song to uh, hit number one, something to that effect. But, uh, you know, quite right. They are, they are who they are. <laughs> it's fun. Uh, the Ramones, uh, End of the Century, is a great documentary. If you're a fan of the Ramones, if you don't know who the Ramones are, whatever your relationship with the Ramones is, check out this documentary, Ramones, End of the Century. Um, you know, it's four guys that get together, played fast, lived fast, um, hated each other, <laughs> loved each other. It's the Ramones. It is the New York attitude balled up into four guys with long hair and leather jackets. Uh, I do have another Ramones documentary called the true story and it's okay, but, um, end of the century is a classic. So if you're only going to watch one Ramones documentary, check out end of the century, um, recording in progress is an interesting documentary. It was from 2018 and it talks about how the studio Recording studio is almost like an instrument. It is uh, an important piece of the recording process. You know, engineers are a very important piece. And that's something that gets lost when people do their recordings at home. They don't have an engineer to say, that doesn't sound good. Or try it a different way. Or, um, you know, move this chorus around. Or move this verse around. You know, and that's the job of an engineer. Uh, it's interesting. One of the things they point out in this documentary is um, that the increase of home recording has not wiped out cheap uh, recording studios or super expensive recording studios, but it wiped out the middle, the middle ground. Those those ones that were you know a hundred bucks an hour or whatever. That's that's uh, who uh, took the hit for home recording. So you know there are still. If you don't have any recording equipment, you can go to a cheap studio that charges 25 bucks an hour, 50 bucks an hour, something like that. Uh, and if you're a signed band, you could go to one that could cost you $100,000 to record an album. Um, but uh, anyway, it, there's a lot of different footage of studios and how things work and stuff like that. So if you're into music recording, the behind the scenes uh, recording in progress from 2018 is a good documentary. Next up is Scratch from 2001 and scratch is a documentary about record scratching. If you've listened to any hip hop or rap or anything like that, you're familiar with scratching. This talks about the history of it, where it came from, um, you know, doing uh, samples, doing, uh, you know, loops, all, all these different kinds of things. Uh, and, and it's all like the uh, big names like I know Mixmaster Mike is on there. I know um, uh, Qbert's on there. Like I know like all these guys that are well known in the, uh, the DJ scene are in there. So there's a lot of famous interviews. There's a lot of examples of things, um, and uh, um, it really. I mean, the takeaway I would say is there's a lot of stuff in scratching that if you don't know what's going on, it just sounds like noise, you know. And so they really explain, they do a good job of explaining different techniques and 
and uh, things like that. So it's worth a watch for that. Uh, if, if you're into it, you'll enjoy it. And if you're not, it's it's uh, at least educational. Uh, down here in the S's, we've got the Sex Pistols with the Filth and the Fury. I'm not going to say too much about this other than this is the um, oh, the, the definitive uh, Sex Pistols documentary. It's a classic. Um, I spent a lot of time in Spokane hanging around with bands, and I used to always use the term herding cats. There were people that I met that were so talented and you couldn't get them in the same room together. You couldn't get two people to sit down at the same time. Uh, you couldn't get everybody in the room at the same time. And when you did, you couldn't get them to want to play the same song at the same time. It's just, that is not a job for me. I thought that was going to be a career and a job for me. It was not. Uh, I did not enjoy the people. I loved the music and I loved the uh, uh, engineering part of it. I, I just couldn't deal with the people part of it, you know. And uh, anyway, you watch The Filth and the Fury and you will be glad you were not the Sex Pistols manager. <laughs> you will be glad you did not have to get Johnny Rotten to sit in one place and say something you wanted him to say because good luck with that. Good luck with that 50 years later. He still doesn't do that. Um, Filth and the Fury, Sex Pistols, check it out. Next is 20 Feet from Stardom. And uh, 20 Feet from Stardom is a documentary about backup singers. And so... Uh, you know, we all know the Rolling Stones song, Gimme Shelter, but do you know the story about the lady that's behind him that sings the lead backup track, you know? And so she's in this movie and there are other famous uh, backup singers that are in this movie. And some of the backup singers um, want to use that as a stepping stone to become lead singers. And some of those people were completely happy with what they were doing. They were backup singers. They did not want the stress of uh, doing a solo career or anything like that. They wanted to, um, you know, be on the stage and be not in the limelight. And so this talks, you know, it, it goes through uh, interviews, a lot of famous backup singers and, and goes through some of their stories. Um, again, it's just one of those uh, interesting, interesting documentaries, something I never thought about, about music. Uh, four left. The first one is uh, Until the Light Takes Us. Mm. <laughs> Until the Light Takes Us. Uh, what's a good way to put it? Until the Light Takes Us is a uh, not a good documentary and is a great film. Uh, <laughs> this is, uh, there was a book called Lords of Chaos, which basically told the formation of Norwegian black metal and this is the counterpart of that this is a documentary that basically tells the exact same story i'm not a fan of black metal i don't listen to black metal um i know that they're talented and i know that uh that there are parts of the uh genre i mean that, that just take you know rapid fire uh speed to be able to play and accuracy and stuff but i, I just don't find it uh it's just not uh, pleasing to the ear, a lot of it to me, but none of that matters in this documentary because this isn't necessarily about the music. It's about the people who make black metal. And I got to tell you, uh, like there is the story that a lot of people, if you know, if you know anything about black metal, uh, sp specifically Norwegian black metal, the history of black metal, then you probably know the story of there was a lead singer of one of the bands who uh, took his own life with a shotgun. 
And when one of his bandmates discovered him, he left and came back with a camera and took pictures of the scene. And uh, that those pictures were later used as the cover of one of their albums. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I say all the time, like Alice Cooper was one of the scariest guys at one time, right? Like Alice Cooper would go on stage with a snake wrapped around him and makeup and, oh, Alice Cooper, he was the devil, you know? And then on the weekend, Alice Cooper would take off all that stuff and he'd go play in golf tournaments. <laughs> and the guys at Motley Crue would make big burning pentagrams uh, and have skulls with fake blood in the early days on their stage. And then when they left, they would go to Taco Bell. I mean, these people were performers. They were stage performers who would do whatever it took to get their bands noticed and to have this image. But when they walked away from the stage, they were not those people. I mean, I don't think later in life, the guys from Motley Crue don't have skulls in their front door that, that have blood that pours out. You know, it was all just a shtick, you know? And uh, when they, the inner circle which is a member of black metal musicians decides to burn down 30 churches in Norway. It's not a shtick. These guys are hardcore. And that is, I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean that one of the, the main guys, uh, Varg, uh, Count Grishnik, uh, all of his interviews are from prison. Uh, where he calmly talks about how this guy he thought was going to kill him. So he went over and he just stabbed him in the skull. <laughs> it's so, uh, boy, I don't even know where to start. Like I said, you don't really have to like um, black metal to enjoy this crazy documentary. Um, Lords of Chaos, the book is, is really good because it goes into so much more detail about that. Um, but if you're not a fan of black metal, you can watch this documentary and then you can be done with black metal. Everything you need to know um, about the people, I mean, the, the start of the genre, all that, it's all in here. So it can be one and done. Watch this documentary uh, until the light takes us and then you can uh, be done. Uh, next up is Weird Paul will work for views. Weird Paul um, is uh, a casual uh, acquaintance of mine. We have exchanged emails. Uh, he has sent me a promo stuff for my show. I have, I watch his shows. We greet each other. Um, weird Paul is a lo-fi musician who has recorded dozens and dozens of albums. Uh, he is very active on Twitch right now. I think of it. I think it's just twitch.tv forward slash weird Paul. Um, and you could go there and, and he does shows multiple times a week on Twitch and performs and, and uh, uh, a fun guy and, and very um, uh, uh, grateful person. And uh, he has a couple of documentaries uh, about him, but this is probably the best produced one. Again, it's called Will Work for Views, and it just talks about, I mean, it shows his day-to-day -day life. It shows his house. It shows uh, him recording songs and all the things that he does. And, and, um, uh, you know, he was inspired like a lot of people by weird Al when, when weird Al, uh, first started releasing parody songs and funny songs. And, um, weird Paul is also known as the original, uh, video blogger or vlogger. Uh, he used to make home videotapes in the early eighties. He has one about eating a, a McDonald's breakfast that is 
got half a million views now on YouTube. And so he was just born, unfortunately, way before YouTube was popular. But all those videos now are available on YouTube. So uh, there's a lot to take in about Weird Paul, uh, you know, his history and, and uh, the all the stuff that he's done. But if you want a crash course in Weird Paul, then check out uh, Will Work for Views. Who is Harry Nilsson? I'm not asking you. That's the name of the next documentary. Who is Harry Nilsson? This is from 2010. Harry Nilsson, you might know him as the author of the song Put the Lime in the Coconut. <laughs> um, he uh, wrote a lot of famous songs. Uh, he was a great musician uh, who dealt with a lot of personal demons. Uh, I know Harry Nilsson best because he wrote all the songs for the movie Popeye, the 1980 movie. Uh, he did all the, the original songs for Popeye. Um, he was abandoned by his father when he was very young. And the documentary covers that. And then it covers how after he had a young son, he abandoned him. That's very tragic. Um, but uh, uh, Harry Nilsson is one of those people that you will go, boy, I don't know any of his songs. And then every single song that plays, you go, oh, yeah, I know that. That sounds familiar. Um in fact, after I saw this documentary for the first time, I bought the Harry Nilsson Greatest Hits. I think it was a two-CD uh, package, and, and uh, I knew most of the songs, and the few I didn't know, uh, I also enjoyed. So uh, that is uh, Who is Harry Nilsson? Uh, finally is uh, Wrecking Crew, and this is, uh, I think, from the late 2000s. I didn't write the uh, year down, but the Wrecking Crew was a group of studio musicians who recorded over a thousand albums and you go, well, how can they do a thousand albums? And I've never heard of them. Well, they were the studio musicians. So if, um, you know, Joe Bob had a new hit single, he wanted to record, they would send him to the studio. These guys would play the music and then the album would say, you know, Joe Bob performs his hits or whatever. Uh, there were a lot of bands that were made up bands that they recorded albums for and uh, and were released. They played on many Beach Boys songs. It wasn't necessarily the Beach Boys playing. Uh, it was the Wrecking Crew and um, Dennis Wilson. Later on, it goes through some of the TV theme songs, and you will be amazed at the songs that they performed. Uh, you'll be like, they did that? They did that? They did Mission Impossible? They did... This, they did that. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, it was very informative and very entertaining. And that was called Wrecking Crew. Um, and I guess the takeaway from that is just that um, you don't always know what you're listening to or who you're listening to. You know, you, you see the package and you go, oh, it's these four guys. But that just because they put four guys on the album doesn't mean uh, that's who you're listening to. Uh, so that is the end of my list. And then I do have a, uh, a final thing I wanted to mention, which is a, a series that was on, I believe they showed them on VH1 for a while and it's called classic albums. Uh, there are a few shows now that use the same format, which is they, uh, go through an album and they play it track by track, or sometimes they break down the tracks and you could just listen to the, the drums or the guitar or the, uh, or the vocals, the individual instruments of each song. But Classic Albums was a uh, a series that they showed on VH1 years ago. And uh, you can actually buy some of them on DVD. So I have like half a dozen 
uh, on DVD and I've found other ones online, but uh, it's, uh, you know, there's a Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon is one of the episodes and Metallica Black album is one that I have on DVD and there's just so many classic albums. Uh, if you like seeing how albums are put together, uh, recorded and, uh, you know, hearing all those little things that you don't normally hear in the mix, uh, go look up classic albums. It's a little hard to Google because it's a generic term, but, uh, uh, maybe classic albums, VH1, something like that. And you will uh, be able to find those, man. This was a lot of music documentaries. It's making me want to break out the old six string and, uh, do some recording. Uh, I was going to do that. And then I remembered that I'm uh, not talented and that I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very musical. Uh, I like making noise every now and then, but unfortunately, um, you know, I put out podcasts and people listen to them. I put out noise and people do not want to listen to. Uh, so uh, when we come back for part three, we will do uh, video game and computer related documentaries. And we'll probably do that sooner than later. It may not, uh, it may be, let's say that will be next week. Uh, we will do that. So that will be uh, coming up soon. Before we uh, close out here, I want to run through and I want to thank my Patreon supporters. Uh, I always say that these are the people that keep the uh, the wheels turning. It is no lie. Uh, I recently had the, the uh, USB adapter for my Atari joysticks go out. If you watched the stream last week, you can watch it in real time. Uh, it just started failing, and now I can't get it to work at all. So I have ordered uh, one of those, and it came right off the top of Patreon funds. So that's the kind of stuff when you donate to the show, that's what that pays for. Um, I have two lamps in my room. Uh, there is one, if you're watching the video, you can see over my uh, shoulder back there. And there's another one right here next to me. These lamps have uh, LED light bulbs in it that I can change with an app. And so when I'm doing my recording and stuff like that, I change the video, especially when I'm streaming and I would change them. Uh, over the past month and a half, all three of the LED bulbs and this lamp have gone out, which makes me think, A, uh, this lamp may have a problem. And then these lights may also, well, the lights are, are shot now, you know, so I'm going to order new LED lights as I uh, continue to set up this as a recording area. Um, but that comes from Patreon funds. Uh, that money that goes into the show comes from that. So, you know, if you ever think, oh gosh, you know, I only have, uh, you know, I'm only signing up at the lowest thing or I'm only, you know, doing this or that. It all helps and it all literally does go back into the show. And when I go back into, um, you know, talking about things that I'm grateful for and stuff, I'm grateful that this show is not like I'm not going broke doing it because I'm constantly putting money uh, back into equipment. So that is why I like to go towards the end of the show and thank all of my uh, patrons. Uh, at the top of the list, I want to give a special shout out to John Pearson. John Pearson uh, signed up to support the show, but uh, he did it directly through PayPal and not through uh, Patreon. And so I didn't see it uh, initially, but uh, I did want to, give a special shout out to John, uh, for supporting. I, I really do appreciate that, uh, through Patreon. My eight bit supporters are Alan Hennessy, uh, Alan Hudgens, Armadon Restel, Brian Barr, Carrie Clanton, Chris Albright, Chris Folds, C dubs, Cowbird boy, Dan Paradroid Heavey, Dave Velociraptor, David Hearn, David Modelat, 
Eric Stryanisi, Garrett Allier, Gary Heather, Graham Vebke, Hacker Radio, which is a relatively new sponsor. I mentioned that on Sprite Castle, uh, that Hacker Radio is a radio station in Helsinki, Finland, and they are broadcasting episodes of Sprite Castle on the radio and supporting the show. So extra uh, special thanks to Hacker Radio. We got Jake Nonamaker, Jason Warns, John Bodakar Schaller, John Treholt, Jose Cazada, Joshua Eckroth, Mark Ellie, Mike McLaughlin, Mitsuyama, Mr. Bundy, Mr. Wacky, Nathan Dagenhart, Olaf Holt, Patrick Markey, Rad Max, Ryder and Christopher Bow, Retro Trace, Rick Reynolds, Robot Doctor 82, Roy Jacobs, Scooter Prime, Scott Lambert, Scott Meredith, Scrap Arcade, Stephen Burt, Steve Rasmussen, The Slow Norris. Travis Gussie, Zeke Pabsky, Zerfall, and the mysterious Cobra Kai. Extra special thanks to my 16-bit supporters, Bill Spear, Boar's Head Tavern BBS, Dan Creek, Dave Zilly, Edward Smith, John Morrison, Matt Nicholson, Matt Smith, Scott Van Drasick, Steve Sharippa, and Vintage Volts. Thank you guys so much for all your support. It is greatly, greatly appreciated. This wraps up the second of three parts of documentaries. Again, if you want to support the show, find out about that. Go to patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. If you want to find the podcast, go to podcast.robohara.com. If you want to find stuff on YouTube, go to YouTube forward slash Sprite Castle or YouTube forward slash Amigos Retro Gaming and look for the Sprite Castle playlist. I think that's it. That's a lot of documentaries for everybody to watch. So I will be back here next week with the third and final part of documentaries. Take care, everybody. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and I will be seeing you all soon.